This is a production of Cornell University. I got a picture of you okay. from a few years ago <laughs> yeah. with your darling who made that guest appearance. I remember yeah. when we, you know, this was right when the pandemic started. I think we were a month, maybe a month and a half into it. We were all locked up. Nobody, <laughs> nobody knew what was going to happen. And what'd you say? She's four now. Yeah, she's four and a half. So, so great. Ah, good yeah. for you. So cute as ever. All right. So listen, um, I'm taking the place of Carl's rant today a little bit, and I'm going to uh, rant a little bit about what, what is about to come upon us next week as we enter the month of May. Um, this whole concept of no mo May has really got some traction. And I have to say, you know, thinking about lawns in a different way inherently is not a bad thing. I think we've been stuck in a pretty, pretty consistent paradigm uh, around lawns and social construct around lawns, if you want to think about it sociologically, for a really long time. We, we have the impression that lawns and things have to look a certain way, um, and it is mostly a subjective thing in, in many times. So we have been many years, and Carl has really taken the leadership on this recently, in um, getting us to look at the ecosystem services of lawns. And one of the aspects of those services is how it can help pollinators and particularly local pollinators. So just a few years ago, a paper was published uh, by a few entomologists who had done some work in the city of Appleton, Wisconsin. And unfortunately, that paper has had to be retracted because of uh, potential inconsistencies in data handling and reporting. The, the backstory here is they somewhat identified, they identified species of insects that simply do not exist uh, in that part of Wisconsin. So, so this sort of undermined this thing more, very recently uh, from an academic perspective. Um, again, not that it is a bad thing to want to have lawns looked at differently and potentially looking at them as flowering opportunities and foraging opportunities for, for local pollinators. So, so this is obviously something of concern because you know, we spent a lot of time talking about this, you know, leaving the debris in your garden, right? Uh, Jen Lerner, one of our great extension faculty in the field has really sort of, you know, sort of been working more with this. And, and Joellen Lampman has been working more with this. This isn't something we are kicking to the curb because a paper got retracted, nor is it something we generally dis, you know, don't want to do in a lawn. But like everything else, you know, we sort of are stuck by the fact that we got to maybe we should think what science says about this. So there is a really a lot of good work coming out of Minnesota. Minnesota has actually rebates they'll provide you if you start planting these seeds in the lawn. So, so there's lots of ways to think about a traditional lawn, a bee lawn, an urban meadow, all these sorts of things you know, uh, are different ways of viewing your lawn, but I can tell you, it gets in it, it gets more and more challenging to manage the kind of lawn you want might want to have. The more diversity uh, you put in it, because even in that diversity, there's going to be plants maybe that you don't want. Now, I wanted to rant a little bit about not mowing for a month, because this is the thing that sort of you know, uh, gets under, under all of us turfgrass extension people's skin here. Um, we have embraced mowing less at Cornell University. Our signature landscape, Live Slope, next to the tower, is not mowed but once a year. 
and it has met with widespread acceptance since we started it in, ready for it, 2009. We've been at this a really long time, and it's gone through a couple of directors of grounds management now led by Dan Scheid, and Dan has totally embraced it, and of course, giving it this great name, Tall Grass, Less Gas. Now, there also are places in the home landscape and in the lawn where maybe this kind of lawn, no-mow lawn, this is what it looks like when you plant one of those low-mow, no-mow lawns, you basically get a collection of fine fescues that flop over when they get really tall. Uh, many times we'll produce seed heads, um, and then that gives it a more of a meadow look. So let's look at mowing. I thought I would take us back to Turfgrass 101, and let's look at mowing. What should every turfgrass manager know about mowing? Natural turf grass is regularly mowed. It's the nature of the definition of turf. Mowing wounds and influences the way plant grows. It selects for the type of plants that are there. It dictates the mowing regime, how much you have to mow and how much you mow depends on the kind of equipment. Now that is a, its own area as we try to mow higher. Okay, sharpen the blade. 10 hours of use, the blade should get a look at. If you've hit anything, you should grind out those chips. So for sure, if you're in the professional grounds management business, you've got a mower blade sharpening program. Mowing higher reduces the density of plants, right? Mowing higher reduces the density of plants. Mowing lower increases the density of plants. So you get more plants per unit area when you mow lower. When you mow higher, you get fewer, bigger plants. When you mow lower, you get more, smaller plants. Now, when you mow too close and you thin the canopy and expose the ground, you get sunlight penetrating the soil. This is a lot of what happens when you go from no mow May to the 1st of June and you wanna mow. Those plants are gonna get thinner and bigger and you're gonna come in and try to bring them down to their normal height. And that's gonna weaken those plants and create opportunities for weeds. Mowing higher lets the roots grow deeper, nothing new here. Mowing higher also will allow plants with creeping growth habits to adapt to the mowing regime. You know, ground ivy is one of them. Winter annual weeds, if you keep a higher cut turf, you might have more winter annual weeds. Now there's a value to these flowering winter annual weeds sometimes, because if you wanna have a flowering lawn, these are some of the early flowers in lawns that can support visiting pollinators that visit your area early. Now, once you start to do this, you can't, once you start having a flowering lawn, you can't be spraying stuff on your grass either because everything you hit the, on those flowers potentially is gonna get absorbed and then bioaccumulated back at wherever these pollinators are hanging out. My colleague at University of Guelph and Sarah Stricker, his colleague in communications there, uh, Eric Lyons and Sarah Stricker, came out pretty strong that says this might be, this is a bad idea for Canadian lawns. They're talking about how it could lead to not only weakened grass, uh, dandelions aren't going to save the bees. You could get infestations with difficult to control weeds uh, like uh, thistles, uh, dead nettles, things that survive under less mowing. Uh, yesterday, we heard from Jen Lerner in our conference call that herpetologists think snakes 
will start to inhabit these areas. And so that's the, that's the end of it for me. I'm, I'm not going anywhere near snakes. Now, grass type also affects how much you have to mow. So if depending on the grass type you have, like if you have a lynx fine fescue mow that Jim Wilmot showed many years ago, produces about a third of the clippings that a ryegrass fine fescue area does or a turf type tall fescue area does, if you're really serious about mowing less, you should get grasses that grow less. And once they start to grow less, you know, that gives other plants potentially opportunities to fill in. Now, the classic one third rule, the don't remove more than 30% of the leaf tissue every time you mow. This was the way we've always talked about it. If you keep your lawn at one inch, you got to mow it when it gets to an inch and a half. And that's once every one to three days on the average over the course of a season. If you mow it two inches, you got to let it grow to three inches to keep a slow growth rate. And that's every five to seven days. You go to three inches, you let it can go to four and a half inches. Now you got 10 to 14 days between mowing. My former grad student and uh, president and founder of Greenkeeper during his time at the University of Nebraska has done a lot of work looking at the impact of the one third rule on growth rate. So he took a tall fescue area out in Nebraska and then decided uh, to mow it either at two inches or three inches, either took off 25% of the leaf tissue, 33% of the leaf tissue, or 50% of the leaf tissue, or just weekly mowing, okay? And then he counted the amount of mowings that occurred. He counted the amount of clippings that were produced and some very clear findings emerged, okay? 50% removal grew the most. So if you uh, let your three inch turf go to six inches and cut it down back to three inches, it produced more clippings than mowing it at four and a half inches. Keep your area at two inches and you let it go to four inches, right? It's also gonna grow more and produce more clippings. So this is what it looks like in a graphical representation. This is the one season of growing. He's looking at the cumulative clipping yield. Two inches, 50% removal, and three inches, 50% removal, the most clipping production, which means you're harvesting nutrients out of the ground. You're using carbohydrates in those plants more frequently to produce those clippings. And one could say that leads to an overall weakening of the turf. So mowing higher and following the 30% rule or the 25% rule will certainly produce less clippings you will mow less. If you follow the one-third rule, you will mow less overall. Now, you mow less because of 50% removal. You have fewer mowings when you go to 50% removal, but you produce more clippings, right? The 33% removal is a more uniform form of growth. The 50% removal becomes weedy and weak. So, Here's our final word before we get into our conversation with Matt about weeds today. Consistently mowing cool season grasses at three inches or higher will reduce the total number of mowings by maintaining the slowest growth rate. You produce less clippings. Shades the surface to prevent annual weeds from germinating, allows for certain incidental flowering plants, we sometimes call those things weeds, to coexist, 
And this may serve as an important food source for local pollinators. But I think my colleague Eric Lyons's comment uh, at Guelph is well taken. There's a lot better ways for these pollinators to get serviced in these environments than uh, just having your lawn flowering. Now, let's do a quick look at the weather and then we'll get on to our weed discussion. It After a, a very warm week last week, it got pretty cool. Uh, we were two to four degrees below normal. Only a few places were close to normal. Um, we are well ahead on accumulated degree days from March 15th. In some places, two to three weeks ahead of normal, uh, which is the 30-year average. So, you you know, we had a really warm spell. Everybody knows it was a pretty mild winter. We had a hot period at the end of February. This doesn't even account for that warm period at the end of February. This is just from the middle of March. It's saying we've really pushed ahead. Now, total precipitation, we everybody got about an inch. Uh, some places like in stores and along southeastern New England, they got about three to four inches, but everybody got about a half to an inch. And this has really uh, solved a lot of the drought problems that we were starting to see, particularly towards the south end of the region. And the outlook is looking is basically saying we're going to be in a pause for at least the next eight to 10 days for sure. It looks like the probability of being cooler than normal is above 50 percent. And the probability for it being wetter than normal is above 50%. So we're going to get a fair amount of rainfall moving in over the next five to seven days. So it will be cloudy and rainy for a while. So it's also going to be tough to get out and do the mowing as we head into no mow May. The weird thing about this season is soils were warm there for a minute. And now they've significantly cooled off. Now they've significantly cooled off. Hold on, the guy's mowing outside. <laughs> okay, there we go. Thanks, Dan. We got to call this guy and get him out of here mowing, but they're working diligently before the rainfall comes. Now, one of the things that has happened is soils are cooled off. And I think this has really slowed the germination of crabgrass. Forsythias are come and gone, and normally we associate that with crabgrass germination and emergence. Right. So so obviously this creates a, a pretty interesting disconnect between what we normally think models are helping us to predict, what we think uh, phenological indicators will help us to predict and looking at the soils, which have been fluctuating and not staying consistently warm. So these indicators might not be the best tool this year, Matt. So I thought I would talk a little bit about non-chemical stuff and uh, crabgrass control. And it goes all the way back to Peter Noden's day where he looked at, you know, uh, inch and a half, uh, two inches, uh, three and a half inches. And he found that overall, if you wanted to reduce crabgrass infestation, mowing higher is definitely the way to go, uh, especially without any herbicide, right? When you don't have an herbicide and you can't use an herbicide, then having uh, that grass mowed higher is definitely gonna keep that crabgrass at bay. And here is that particular graph. Now, mowing higher, if you've already put your pre-emergent herbicide down, now we're gonna see what happens to the length of crabgrass germination and if your pre-emergence is gonna hold on. Because we know that crabgrass follows that sort of classic sigmoidal curve 
where you get a little bit in the early phase and then a consistent amount for a period of time. And so when you look at this work by Jeffries and Gannon in 2016, they looked at dimension, uh, pendimethylin and prodiamine, dithiopyr, pro, you know, prene, um, and prodiamine or barricade at two different mowing heights. Now for dimension and pendimethylin, mowing at an inch and three quarters definitely reduced uh, overall crabgrass control. And neither of those products, uh, dithiopyr and pendimethylin, independent of mowing height, were as good as barricade. So if you've got to mow lower and you've got thinner turf or your turf's not going to be competitive, based on this work and tall fescue, it looks like uh, barricade is your choice. Now, Matt, you told me you're going to start looking at rolling and crabgrass. So I just thought I'd remind everybody that we began to observe this rolling and crabgrass control thing at the Vineyard Golf Club a number of years ago where your technician, Dan Tuck, used to work on a regular basis. And Doc Watson uh, presented some work back in 1950 in the USGA green section record. It's the only place we could find anything that showed compaction seemed to decrease the percentages of crabgrass. We've played around with this. This is a year after we stopped driving over an area. You can still see the crabgrass controlled a year after we stopped driving over it with the tires and the rollers. Chris Sitko, when he was on the group, when he was out at the Vineyard Golf Club, actually went out and rolled five days a week and was able to control crabgrass in a way that almost makes it look like you sprayed it there, Matt. So let's yeah. start there. Crabgrass control, uh, the disconnect between the phenological indicators, the soil temperature, uh, and where you think we're at. Have you seen any crabgrass and what's your thoughts about managing it with the way it's been this spring? Yeah, a great question. So we've we've got crabgrass up here in New Jersey. Um, I think it was interesting though. I think we've got an initial flush of emergence in, in some areas and then some areas that are still in a holding pattern where we haven't gotten you know, the temperatures. Maybe those are higher higher grass areas, denser turf areas where the soil temperature hasn't quite made it to that threshold for germination. So we do have, you know, kind of this pause that we're in right now, I guess. Um, but, you know, so yeah, we've got our, our crabgrass pre-emergence trials are out and luckily they are because the crabgrass is already up um, in our in our areas. Um, so it could be an interesting year. I think now's a good time to get those, those pre-emergence herbicides out if you haven't already. Um, and especially maybe a year for, you know, using that uh, reach back or whatever we want to call it that Dithiopyr has, that Dimension has, right, that it can control newly emerged crabgrass plants um, and then maybe alleviate some of those worries about, you know, um, trying to time it perfectly so you don't have to make a second application, right, worried about degradation and that sort of thing. So um, scouting is always a good idea, looking in bare soil areas, south-facing slopes, that sort of thing. Um, to make sure, you know, if you're not using dimension that you don't have any crabgrass emerged. It just, I think it just depends where you are and how hot you got when we had that three-day stretch a few weeks ago, which for us was 85 degrees, 88 degrees. Um, so we, you know, I even saw goosegrass up um, in a couple places at a an event I was at earlier this week, a sports field manager's event. So it was a little scary a few weeks ago from from my perspective of weed management. <laughs> okay, so you so you're saying they popped, but they're just sitting there. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they are right now. And, you know, it's the, so that's where it's interesting. You know, we talk about some of this stuff like rolling and I mm -hmm. think the rolling, it, the compaction probably impacts germination, but I think also the rolling is going to kill off some of these small seedlings, especially right now at a period where they're not happy. Um, you know, they're C4 plants, so they're, they're struggling right now. And I, that's what we're, Dan and I are kind of wondering is, you know, I think the, the rolling, especially early in the season might be critical. Um, but again, we're, we're excited to look at that as a, again, alternative practice to, you know, herbicides. Great. So how are you going to do it? What, what's your, I, I was curious yeah. to see, you're going to set it up. What's your plan for setting up that experiment? We've got, right now we've got two rollers. Um, we've got a tow behind, you know, a tractor or not even a tractor. You could tow behind a cart, a lawnmower. It's a water-filled roller um that you know anybody could buy and then we're also going to use um one of these uh heavy equipment type rollers that actually we use it to roll our putting greens but okay so yeah murphy's it. letting you use his pavement roller yeah the pavement roller you know what i'm talking about <laughs> i know exactly yeah. what you're talking about yeah okay yeah all right so we're, we were also looking at maybe doing something with a little friction on it um like the the rutgers wear machine but we I think we're just going to start with something simple and, and look at the rolling. So, right. So, so this yeah. is very exciting. Now, the yeah. crabgrass conversation, I think, is very interesting. Just to wrap it up, you know, dimension gives you that reach back activity to get those younger plants. So, growth stage matters, right? Yeah, you know, where it's at, when it's germinating, growth stage matters. And it, and it starts to matter again if you miss pre and you got to start using quinclorac and, and phenoxaprop, you know, later on. When we're not doing the show and you find out how bad your crabgrass control is, you got to go back out there with some post product. So you do have to pay attention to your growth stage. But it looked really clear, Matt, that no matter what, a uh, barricade provides that consistent. Um, if if you know if if you're going out early, you got to push yourself early. Um, and even if you know you might have a weak turf, like that study showed, we even with the low cut turf, um, if you're really relying on your herbicide to carry all that weight, a uh, barricade seems like the better option. Yeah, and we saw that in some work we did that's um, a few years ago now, I guess, where we looked at. Uh, early applications, I'm talking like mid-February, and um, in one of our locations, the barricade did work better when we made a single application really early. Again, we were trying to simulate, you know, a lawn care operator who has to get all, you know, all get to all the properties right. before crabgrass germinates, and you might have to start in mid-February or maybe really early March, um, mm. and in that situation, um, we did see the dithiopure and the pendimethalin, again, with one application, high crabgrass pressure in our sandier soil site, the, the, the barricade was better. Um, okay. So there's yeah. there's something to that. I, I think your point about dense turf is also really important. And we've seen that in some of our other work where, you know, single applications of say dimension provide maybe 90% control where we've got thin turf, but then when we have had in the same test, um, put it with a good, uh, put the a fertilizer program with the dimension, all of a sudden, you know, everything's 100% control. So that turf density coupled with, you know, say any way you can get density, I think higher mowing heights, the easiest way to do it. Um, but whatever you need to do, um, you know, you can get by with less herbicide. I think we need more research to show 
to, to investigate that. Can we get by with less herbicide where we have denser turf, right? Um, like that work that Travis did and the work that Pete Dernone did, they were using full rates. And so um, that stuff's really valuable and it, and it, and it shows, um, you know, that we, we need to increase mowing heights or, you know, yeah. cultivate yeah, dense turf. Can. And if you're gonna, you know, if you're going to mow it low, like a, you know, a golf course, you better be prepared to, to provide some more nutrients as well. But listen, yeah. I don't even care about crabgrass because I'm scared. You know what? of goose grass now this is a plant that you're saying it's already germinated okay it has this flat growing toupee growing habit that it can survive under really close mowing i've seen it on putting greens now yeah. guys you know can go out and spray it you know you get the the whitening products that you know again you have a variety of products that will work on it post-emergent um pre-emergent is a different deal and so I want to talk to you about a couple of things that have come up recently, Matt, that's yeah. got me concerned and your name is on them, which uh, <laughs> is on at least one of them. So, so here we have uh, uh, goosegrass resistant to uh, dithiopyr and we have resistance to Ronstar back from 2017. And you brought this up a number of years ago like when we started doing the show. You're like, you know, Frank, we have a crabgrass-based pre-program up here in the Northeast, and it's giving goosegrass an opportunity to expand. Now you're telling me I got resistance on top of this sort of nature of our constant use. And then McElroy and his group comes out and says, uh-oh, <laughs> these things have mutated, and you've got all kinds of different types now that are in turf. And this, Matt, you know, Scott's been playing around with resistance. So I'm sure that's how he sort of stumbled into this a little bit. Um, how concerned are you about goosegrass? Uh, I know you were a few years ago. Yeah. Are, we in, are you growing increasingly concerned based on what you've seen the last few years? Um, I, I think, you know, I think, I don't want to say more concerned. I think it's still a big problem. I think the... I think in the Northeast, I've worked with some superintendents and turf managers that have uh, adapted and managed to get it under control. I think the key is we need to, you know, use different pre-emergence and, and adapt. And I think there's a lot more we need to learn about this weed. Um, I think it's something that we're going to have to learn to live with. And the interesting thing about goosegrass, as you just showed, is that it has this propensity to adapt to whatever situation. I think it'll adapt to an herbicide situation, right? You did the same thing 20 years in a row and it says, well, I got a way around this. And then management wise, it also has clearly adapted. I think it has that ability more than crabgrass. So it's similar to crabgrass, but we have to keep in mind, it's going to adapt. Um, it's clearly, you know, it can tolerate low mowing, which crabgrass typically, I've never seen crabgrass really make it through a summer in a potting green. Well, that's not true. Rarely do I see it, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. The, the goosegrass uh, has this ability, again, to adapt. So we just need to keep that in mind. And I think we need to, you know, keep in mind that it's, uh, we need an integrated sort of management approach. We need to think about, okay, well, I switched my herbicide. That's good for now. But, you know, a lot of superintendents and turf managers, uh, sports field managers in this region have switched to oxidizon. Well, you, so, you saw what's happened in the Southeast. They saw yeah. this, they went through this story 20 years ago. So they got resistance to barricade. And now they got resistance to Ronstar. So I, I think um, we can preserve the herbicides we have by uh, looking at other things like mowing height, um, 
post-emergence programs? How do we create turf density? So that those sorts of things are are really important. Uh, and this weed, again, is going to, I think it's here for a while. It's going to keep moving north, probably. Okay. Well, um, I got a question from Ben Palmer that I thought is good before I go to some of the other things I want to do, Matt. Ben's asked about winter annual weed control when you can't spray in the fall because the fields are under use uh, or you're using uh, your seeding and things like that. Or by the time you can spray, it's it might be too late. So mm -hmm. uh, what do you recommend for winter annual weed control when you're in an, a sports field situation and you can't spray in the fall? Well, and you can't spray. I mean, it's tricky. You could you can spray in the spring. I don't know if, if that's an option, Ben, but um, you know, the winter annuals, I find, I guess if there's anything, it might be a seeding program. They're not very competitive. They, I mean, I realize you've got a lot of wear, so it's it's tricky. They're, they they like the open spaces. I, I don't see them usually establishing very well where you've got, you know, a really dense stand of turf. Of course, there's constant wear from the, the games. So, you know, I'd really, there's not a whole lot that I can think of that you can do um, if you can't spray you know, for it basically in, in the fall. So, so you'd yeah. have to, you know, my first guess would be um, get as much, either get as much seed on as you can yeah. uh, or, or when they're done. Yeah. Oh, more, more issues in municipal lawns uh, than sports fields. So it looks like okay. traffic isn't the issue uh, based on what Ben's saying. So it's yeah. not that he's getting thinning turf. It's that he can't get out there in the municipal lawns in the fall to spray. Right. So those plants are getting robust quickly. So if you don't have to seed, can we put a pre on late? Yeah, the, the tricky thing would be, you know, a lot of these things are going to start coming up early September, mid-September, you know, sometimes later. So you'd have to get the pre-emerge out, you know, early. Um, you could use a pre-emerge like isoxaben or something like that. You'd have to just get it out. Uh, early. I don't know when you could get out there to spray, you know, uh, when when that's available, but they, they do germinate. You know, we get that first cool batch of cool weather in the fall, and if the soils are wet, a lot of them will, will germinate. So it's okay. uh, and we got We got another question from a guy uh, who you talked with in Rhode Island um, yeah. uh, on the Cape. Do you think we're going to see resistance on crabgrass by using the same product? I think we have identified some dinitroaniline resistance on crabgrass. Uh, what do you say? Yeah, I think it's definitely possible. Um, something you'd want to be careful of. It doesn't seem like the crabgrass is quite as has a, quite as a propensity to develop resistance, but I, I definitely, you know, it's not a bad idea to rotate, you know, pre-emergence herbicides and that sort of thing. I think the trick is how do you really rotate though? when thiopure, perdiamine, and pendimethalin have the same mode of action. So, um, you know, using post-emergence products, if, if you see stuff slip through is one way to manage for resistance. Um, it doesn't, again, we've, we've, I've heard of instances of it, but it doesn't seem as widespread as it is with goosegrass. So. All right, listen, we're past the, we're past the time, but I got uh, one more question because I'm probably not going to get you again for a while. Um, just like I think we're equally concerned about goosegrass, yeah. nutsedge is getting to be a bigger and bigger pain in the ass. And all we've got are these sulfonylureas in New York. We don't have dismiss. Yeah. Um, I know we've always said you've got to make these applications around the summer solstice, right? It seems to be where you can get some post and some pre-activity. I know we've said to them, put in crop oils or methyl methyl methylated seed oils. 
Um, is there any insight into nuts edge management uh, that you can get done in a year or two? Or are we basically looking at large infestations taking a, a, a couple of years to, to get under control? Nuts edge. Yeah, it's always going to be a multi-year issue because of the tubers. But one of the things we've looked at is earlier applications actually timed at pre-crabgrass. Oh, wow. um, so mid-April, and we've done it with Kalinga too. And that's been funded by PBI because they've got the new Vexus product out. And then they're going to have uh, the liquid Archon. So those those are, you know. What's the active in those products? It's pyramisulfan, and you have it in New York. Oh, we do. Um, so it's an ALS inhibitor. It's yeah, yeah. not a sulfonylurea, but it's pretty close. I mean, it's the same mode of action. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and I think because they've got the new product coming out, they've been looking at different ways to use it. So we've actually found that mid-April applications followed by another application six weeks later actually works really well. And I think the key with Nuts Edge is maybe not waiting and trying to get it as early as we can. And realizing that these products actually have a little bit of soil residual as the shoots kind of emerge through, um, they apparently, at least the Vexus is hanging out in there long enough that uh, we're getting good control from that strategy. And I think, you know, the, the nut sedge begins to produce new tubers just four to six weeks after the shoots come out of the ground. So um, even waiting till the solstice might be too long, depending on the area. I mean, I think still think that's a good time, but um but yeah, we've we've had luck with that early work. The key is though, you got to know where it was the previous year because you're you know if you're in mid April you don't have nuts. It's hard yet. to see. They're so you got to scout. Yeah. So I think the the thing that I've taken from all this is there's no such thing as too early with with nut sedge. I think uh, again we're still it's still kind of early. We haven't published any of it, and it's but we've got a couple years of data on both Kalinga and crabgrass with the Vexus and the Archon. Um, and I think Halosulfuron might do the same thing, but we haven't looked at it. So we need to take a look at that more. But that's that's my two cents on on nuts edge. But I, I think realizing that you've got it's going to be a multi-year battle no matter what, because if you let it go, say like we did last summer when we had, you know, a, a drought, it can be one of the more competitive things in the landscape when we've got a, a dry summer and the turf oh, is suffering. Oh, so. and, and bringing soil, moving soil around. Listen, Matt. We had no problem filling up the fastest 30 minutes. It only <laughs> took us 34 minutes. Thanks yeah. so much for taking the time. Best of luck with the growing season. Everybody else, thanks for joining me. Next time we'll be with you. We'll be in at least three weeks from now when I return from a short uh, vacation with uh, my family in Europe. So until then, uh, thanks very much, Matt, and we'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks see for guys. having me. Thank you. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.